Welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, January 24th, 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Encore Magazine, Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. How is uh, the mm-hmm. feedback going for Encore Magazine? Oh, very well, in fact. Yeah, it's very nice how many uh, emails I've received uh, from people, uh, some that I don't even know. But uh, so, uh, so, so far, so great. Good. And remind uh, folks that Encore Magazine just had its uh, first issue out for January, February of 2021. You can go to com. We have a link to that in Peter's bio in the show notes. Check it out. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He's, the, he's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. And with us, we have a very special guest. John Lloyd Young is uh, joining us from the West Coast, where it is very early. Hopefully not as cold as it here is in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Broadway fans, of course, know John from his um, from his Tony Award, and Drama Desk Award, and Theater World Award as Frankie Valli in uh, that little uh, that little skit called Jersey Boys. John, thank you for getting <laughs> up so early and talking with us on Broadway well, Radio. I'm excited to um, to get my brain stimulated with the with some Broadway tea. Let's do it. Hey, Peter, I got, I got to say something before we start. Is that all right? Sure. It only took 60 years for somebody to cover 1963 and 1964 Broadway season. (laughs) We've we've only had William Goldman's the season for 60 years. And your, your year was the better year. (laughs) <laughs> so anyway congrats on on that belated congrats on that god love you what a nice thing to say i appreciate <laughs> i well i've always loved i've always loved his rundown of of uh of the season and now now you know now there's a good follow-up thank you Go- goldman-esque I, what a compliment <laughs> <laughs> uh, well that is uh just truly um not only a tribute to Peter, but a tribute to John, because, you know, you're so is staying in touch with your roots from being, uh, as we were talking before, we started a, an intern at the Dodgers. Uh, and for those who are not familiar with what we say when, when we're talking about the Dodgers, we're not talking about the baseball team. We're talking about the producing team, the Dodgers, Dodger Theatricals here in New oh, York However, City. 1963 was a very good year for the Dodgers uh, baseball team. <laughs> they beat the Yankees four straight. <laughs> yeah. See, I've always loved that about Peter Felicia. Is that, you know, he can go head-to-head with anyone on Broadway history, but he also knows sports, and that's cool. Like, I, don't, I don't know a lot of people who are, you know, who know that, who are like that, have that, those two genes going at once. So. Yeah, but they're so similar. I mean, both have runs, right? I mean, you had a long run with Jersey Boys. Both have hits. You had a hit with Jersey yep. Boys. Um, yeah. And, you know, so really there's so much in common. I, I, it's a phenomenon. 
<laughs> we just have to get them to match those baseball players' salaries. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. And then we got made. Now we're talking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> well, just a reminder that baseball salaries didn't really become hyperinflated until the 80s or, or a little bit later. But, John, you uh, – you spoke with my my Broadway radio partner Matt Tamanini uh, a few months back, yeah. Um, and Matt is the the younger version of Peter Felicia with equal sports. He writes for he writes for uh, Grantland Holy Land, the uh, the sports blog for the Ohio State University, mm-hmm. uh, and he's very into uh, professional sports and Broadway at this on equal measures. So uh, perhaps. Uh, Peter can pass the torch on to Matt Tamanini. <laughs> I'm so I'm so impressed because I just don't you know I don't have that gene at all. It was a theater kid coming up, and I I could not have been less interested in, because I was following. I was probably reading stuff that you were writing, Peter. Uh-huh. This, you've been writing a while. Yes, um, <laughs> it has so, ended up. Yeah. Um. So any anyway, on to. On to other things. We're, we're not going to have a discussion about sports, at least I, that I can participate in Perfectly on this fine. call. Perfectly fine. Well, for those who are in love with sports, we have something coming up on February 12th called the Vegas Valentine, yeah. where uh, <laughs> John Lloyd Young is going to be doing uh, a streamed live uh, concert from Las Vegas uh, for Valentine's uh, Surprises and Romantic Stories. So tell us a little bit about that, John. Well, it, it's not too much of a tongue-in-cheek that you just said for those who are in love with sports because, because we'll go backwards on what's going to happen at this Vegas Valentine's Day. We're, we're all going to see a, a, a good sportsmanship, uh, one would hope, in, in myself because the after-party for this one, I do an after-party every one of these uh, live streams. Because I used I used to have a real uh, meet and greet game going with the, these fans, and we can't do that during COVID. So my after party is going to be a sort of like a speed dating round where I sit at a table with a bottle of wine and talk one on one to uh, to people who call in. Mm, so that's great. That's going to require a, some good sportsmanship and a little bit of uh, a, a good dose of of bravery because I don't know what's going to be coming at me, but, but I think, but you know, it's all in the good fun. I had to ask you, I, I mean, Vegas is wonderful and it's, it's great, but <laughs> if you're doing it streaming and virtual, did you need to go to Vegas? I wanted to because I, uh, because there's this, this place that I play there that I've played several times before COVID happened called the space a friend of mine who's um who runs it invited me to to play there to live audiences several years ago um it the space itself it's called the space but also the space itself, the physical space itself is um what we would call a black box um on the east coast and on the west coast we'd call it a small sound stage and because of those capabilities and a fantastic lighting package and sound package, um, Mark Chinook, who runs the place, and I, after uh, lockdown started, we conceived of, well, let's keep this performance space open by going virtual um, throughout this, however long this lasts. So that's why Vegas. And also, in terms of social distance and all those things, I, you know, I live in Los, uh, Los Angeles. So Vegas is a day trip for, for us. So I can drive myself. I don't have to get on a plane and risk the, you know, the COVID risks with, with that kind of travel. And um, so basically be isolated in my own little pod on the way there, walk into um, wherever I stay. That's also, I try to keep isolated, not a big, strip hotel where I'm in the elevator with, with strangers and from every, every step of the way, I just keep to myself. And so does Tommy Farragher, my music director, who, for those who are listening, who've seen this in concert at places like 54 below or the Carlisle or whatever, they'll know him. Cause he's my, um, who is Barbara Cook's guy that, that followed her around Peter? Wally Harper. Wally. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I was an undergrad at Brown university years ago, 
they used to have a, a campus dance at every um, graduation every year. And what, during my time there, um, each year it would be a big Broadway personality who would come. So I watched uh, Rita Moreno do her sound check, and I watched Wally Harper and Barbara Cook do a sound check another year. Um, so anyway, Tommy's been my kind of Wally Harper, and he lives he lives out here in LA too. So he also goes in a car and we don't meet in Vegas until we get there for the sound check. And then we depart and go our separate ways afterwards. So it's, it's logistically sort of on the easier side, but also production values are very high. Um, and so that, uh, and so it, we all can deal with these COVID protocols but also create something that's not from our, the kitchen in our apartment, um, which there's nothing wrong with that, but I wanted to do something for my fans, especially that would feel as close to fly on the wall in a real live performance as possible. And, and I think we've achieved that. John, as you're describing you and Tommy getting into cars and meeting in Vegas, I'm sort of visualizing some sort of Ocean's 14 type of thing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I, you're, you're not too far off because it is kind of cool to, but, you know, to show up and, you know, in your mask and like, a, you know, men of espionage and <laughs> to, uh, to tuck into this place and then do a, you know, do this show and leave. There's, Vegas does have that mythology about it and it still is exciting uh, to show up there even with, uh, you know, I don't want to get them in trouble, but it's, it's still, it's, they're still going strong. I mean, people are, there's still a lot of people there doing stuff. They're all just wearing masks. You know, I'm not, I don't involve myself with that because I, I, I need to stay healthy and mm-hmm. this, this COVID, especially, you know, for singers, you don't know who's going to have lung problems or whatever. So I'm, mm. I'm, I am very aware of the, of the risks and trying to mitigate them as much as possible. So let, let's put it this way. You know, I don't go from, from uh, doing my live stream to, you know, sitting at the craps table, you know, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't do it. It's a, it's a weird way to engage with Las Vegas, but also, but but it's I think very fun for an audience who gets the feeling of Vegas um, without having to go there and be physically in danger. Also, many of us have favorite holidays. Uh, indeed, is Valentine's Day one of yours? Was that part of the motivation? As a singer, it has become uh, a regular. I have Valentine's shows every year somewhere, uh-huh. um, and of course, it started off first in a big way at, at the cafe Carlisle, which then was my annual Valentine's gig for several years running. So, um, Valentine's day has become a favorite uh, of mine of the holidays where I'm asked to perform Mm -hmm. because because that's where the material that I love the most and that I do the best, um, in terms of thematic, thematic material, I like love songs and, all the ins and outs of those kind of songs um, lyrically and thematically. And so it all overlaps and I can just choose my favorite songs for, for Valentine's day every year. It's a good holiday for me as a singer in my material. All right. Now, given the fact that we're talking about a romantic holiday, I guess most of the songs are ballads. Are there any uptempo songs? Well, they're I think that a, a love song, even if it's talking about lost love or unrequited love, is still a good song for Valentine's Day because you know, sure, guys, like yeah, some Valentine's days That's you don't right. have to date. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I sing a a, a good mixture of uh, ballads and and when I do ballads, because Peter, I think you might be you might be um, touching on something. I'm very emotional singer and an Italian singer. My, you know, my mother's side was Italian and a, a, a very emotional singer. And my dad's side is Welsh. And so, and, you know, as you know, you, can you get any more emotional than like Tom Jones or uh-huh. early Gassy, you know, so there's something on both sides of my, of my heritage, that very emotional singers. So 
I lost my train of thought because it's seven in the morning. But um, <laughs> <laughs> where okay, where was I, Peter? Because I was uh, uh, talking about of, ballads, uh, lost love, uh, the fact that oh, it's, yeah. Valentine's okay. Day so, isn't a great day for everybody. There you go. So if I had if I had just in over the last several years, just decided to do what I want to do and not had to think about the audience at all, I probably would do ballad after ballad because I'm so emotional. But, uh, you know, very early on, I was told by agents, managers, whatever, you can't do all ballads. You can't do an all ballad show. Mm-hmm. People, you know, you, you don't want people to fall asleep. Well, first of all, I've learned over the years that people are not going to fall asleep when I do ballads, you know, but so that's nice to know. Good. But it, but the uh, but the nature of that advice was such that it it gave me the sense that over the years when I choose a ballad, um, it's always something that has some driving force underneath it that elevates it above being something sappy or mm-hmm. or let's bar- borrow from uh, you know the Velveteen Rabbit or sappy or soporific. So we. <laughs> You know, so, um, so my ballads when, you know, are the ones that hit it out of the park, like Unchained Melody, for example, Uh they, they tend my talent, my ballads tend to grow to a crescendo. And so, um, amongst the, the songs that you would qualify as ballads, I think they're still pretty energetic. And then the other ones that are like, uh, you know, so for example, uh, little Anthony's hurt so bad is, is one that I do. Um, mm-hmm. in my concerts and, and that one still qualifies for Valentine's day because it's a, it's a guy who's aching with love for someone who can't have anymore. And mm-hmm. to me that, that fits uh, the bill. So what kind of uh, band do you have back in you? No band this time. So I usually have a band wherever I play, but, but actually that's not true. A lot of the things mm-hmm. that I do are, like Wally Harper and Barb and Robert Cook, you know, it's just me and Tommy because of COVID and because of the protocols, we are doing the best show that we can do with the least amount of people in the room for obvious reasons. So it's just me and Tommy, which is when I say just me and Tommy, that's a just between two very heavy um, parentheses because that's enough. Um, Especially when it's, um, you know, it's funny, we started this with a little bit of my alluding to watching Rita Moreno do her sound check or whatever. And, and those performances on the campus green at Brown University were like cabaret type performances where it was just the singer and the piano. And you can't tell me that Rita Moreno doesn't tear it up if she doesn't have a band. I mean, <laughs> she, she's literally up on the piano herself, you know, <laughs> rolling around on it. And so um, the, sh- the answer in the short term is that we don't have our, we have a great band in Vegas that joins us when things are uh, mm-hmm. normal. Mm-hmm. Now it's to be a band of uh, two. What was your major at Brown? Um, well, uh, everyone gets liberal arts degree and, and it's kind of unconventional. Um, but I, if I had gone to a conventional school, I would have a, a theater major and, um, and a Spanish, uh, minor. Um, but I, but I was in the theater department there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So favorite roles there included. Oh my God. <laughs> well, we were very Sondheim heavy. What, ah. So I played, um, <laughs> I played Frederick in a little night music. Uh-huh. I played Anthony and Sweeney Todd. And uh-huh. I played um, Bobby and company. Wow. Um, and it was definitely reading a lot of Peter Felicia then. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. And I, and I was also, and I was also the teaching assistant in the music department for the big, the big survey on musical theater. And, um, and my specialty, you know, a, I was the TA, but my, my track was an independent study on candor and ebb. And, uh-huh. and, and then I taught them that year. So, you know, mm. I, I was, as they say, a pig in shit. Cause I love all <laughs> that. And then, you know, Oh, and, P- and Peter, you'll appreciate this. Years later, um, you know, when I was w- working on uh, Obama's uh, arts, yeah, committee, right, arts right. committee, I was that I found myself at the white house every year that he was giving out the, um, the national medals, uh, in mm-hmm. the art 
humanities. And I was there when John Kander got his national. Mm. Mm. So that, that to me was full circle moment. Yeah. That, being on Obama's committee must've been an astonishing honor. Uh, yeah, I'm still astonished. I mean, because you talk about that now that that uh, administration is two administrations ago. Mm. And I just remember coming up in New York or whatever as you know, my whole life, whenever I would meet someone who worked in any capacity for the Kennedys, it was like, oh, my God, it's such, I mean, just jaw dropping that you even were um, associating with someone or or engaging with someone who had a connection to that administration. And I think sure. that as the years go on, I will be more and more astonished myself at having engaged with the, with the first African-American family in the white house. And mm-hmm. not, not to mention all of the um, really happy and amazing initiatives that they had. That was a, that was a beautiful time. And, and I hope we can regain it after this like nightmare. <laughs> in, in fact, you did resign as, as a result of the next administration. Yeah, and I know I didn't want to resign because I wanted there to still be a – I mean, I wanted to resign under those circumstances. Sure. It was sure. Charlottesville, so it was it was the first really shit-hit-the-fan moment, like the raid on the Capitol a couple weeks ago. You know that, So Charlottesville was the first one. And those of us who stayed back after Trump came on is because we were still doing important things sure. with the Kennedy Center and for – in my case, arts and education, I didn't want to stop working with kids just because there was an, not a very nice president. Mm-hmm. So I was naive. I thought that I could continue to just sort of promote the arts on a national level it, uh, aside whatever he was doing, but it became untenable. It became obvious that it would be a stain on all of our reputations to just to look the other way. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Hmm. John, uh, I was uh, going through some of your uh, YouTube performances and reading up, uh, getting prepared for this discussion this morning, and uh, I came across uh, you singing in multiple different languages. (laughs) Uh, So uh, I think uh, I counted four different languages. You sang in uh, Spanish, uh, of course, English, uh, Mandarin, and Hebrew. Is that? Did I get them all, or did I miss any? Spanish, English, Mandarin, Hebrew, Italian, Italian. Um, okay, that's and, true. Yeah. You know, so, so this is maybe going to get me in trouble down the line, but I don't think so. So I just <laughs> I just saw something on Instagram yesterday that was like an old picture of Eartha Kitt, and that she sang in seven languages. Mm. And and I looked at it and I thought ah, that's interesting. So. One thing that I've learned about myself over the years is a really um, strong facility and capacity for languages. You know, an early friend of mine, mentor in the business was Theodore Bakel, who also who also was a polyglot and had he spoke five languages and probably fluently. He was a genius guy. I mean, it's his progenies. His two sons were both went to Harvard. I mean, I mean, he was a genius guy. Um, I guess where someone's kids go to college doesn't you know, <laughs> about you, but, I, but at any rate, there's there's some 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 uh, intelligent genes in that in that uh, pool. So, um, I've learned over the years just because someone asked me to do it, or you know, I was uh, became friends through the USO and in, in Washington D.C. and stuff with a a guy who would have been. Mitt Romney's uh, ambassador to um, uh, to Italy had Romney won in that cycle, and so he and and he's a PhD in Italian studies and all this stuff. And I I've done several performances for him in relation to um, supporting troops and things, and and he wanted me to learn you know to sing um, a song in Italian, and he had hired me for something, and I had like two weeks to get it ready, and he just made the request and didn't even think twice about whether I would do it or not. You know, he is not a, a singer or in that world, really. He's in a different area. And I think he just assumes singers can sing in language, you know, op- <laughs> people come up with yeah. opera singers or whatever, just assume singers can sing in languages. And, 
And so I didn't think twice about it and just started to accept that challenge when it would come up so much so that with what I said earlier about, I might get myself in trouble. The new chief of staff for the state department is someone I was acquainted with uh, during the Obama years who had a different role at that time. The state department has some sort of program where they send American artists out to embassies or whatever around the world. It's kind of soft power, like state department arts thing. So I don't really know that much about it, but I wrote her a letter to congratulate her on her new position and said in the letter, don't forget I can sing in this, this, this in language and, and, and basically any language you ask me to sing in. And so we'll see if it comes to fruition and I'm in like, I don't know, Borneo or something. And I'll, <laughs> I'll report back to you whether those, uh, those fringe languages, you know, become part of my repertoire. But, uh, <laughs> but I do have a real facility with, with uh, languages and especially, I mean, especially if I can listen to a recording of someone in the native language doing it, uh, I will be able to pull it off without a hitch. I mean, I, I'm very good. I have a very good ear for that. So, for example, you know, the Hatikva, the national anthem of of um, uh, the, of um, Israel, I learned phonetically and, you know, sang it to, so impressively uh, that even even Theodore Bikel was dumbstruck. <laughs> so I was I, I knew if Theodore Bikel was dumbstruck, dumbfounded, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. like then I I was doing mm-hmm, a good job. So. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's indeed. a skill I learned accidentally, and it's proven to be really a great parlor trick, guys. <laughs> <laughs> especially when, especially when the Jersey boy would because people don't people know people are busy. They know their impression of you. You know that if they don't have a lot of skin in the game, they see Patty Lapone. They're like, oh yeah, she was on that TV show in the eighties. Uh, mm-hmm. Um. They don't necessarily know, or they remember her from those Avita commercials and mm-hmm. you know New York City television or something. But so in my case, when the Jersey Boy opens up and starts singing in Mandarin, <laughs> that's pretty unique. <laughs> I was wondering if uh, you're gonna because this uh, live stream from Vegas on February 12th is going to be uh, i guess available globally if uh folks who have heard your worldwide will tune in and you'll be able to sing in a few different languages well that that might be another another one um i was because i i'm wanting to do these every every six weeks or so so that might be another one where i open it up and, and kind of do all of the you know as as much of the stuff i have worked up in other languages in one concert but this one, um, this one will be mostly f- for English speakers. <laughs> but except the, that the songs are so classic that they'll be known across the world anyway. So the people who tune in from other parts of the world will know these songs. I mean, everyone ac- around the world knows Unchained Melody. Mm-hmm. So, um but that is a good idea for the future. And so you, you are a little bit of an Oracle James. <laughs> <laughs> Unchained melody, by the way, was the song that they t- displaced the ballad of Davy Crockett as the number one song in the country after the ballad of Davy Crockett had been on the number one position for about two months. So, um, it, uh, it was quite something at the time. People expected the ballad of Davy Crockett would be the number one song uh, now and forever, but uh, it was Unchained Melody that took over. We'd like to welcome a new sponsor to Broadway Radio, Audible. As you probably know, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, languages, business, motivation, and now podcasts. We have highlighted Audible's work a number of times on Broadway Radio, and as a listener to Broadway Radio, you know that Audible has been supporting the development of new works through their Audible Theater Initiative. So I think that the combination of Broadway Radio listeners and Audible Plus is a perfect match. With Audible Plus, you get full access to the Plus catalog, which is filled with thousands and thousands of select originals audiobooks, and podcasts, including ad-free versions of popular shows, as well as exclusive series. 
Want to listen to Jake Gyllenhaal and Tom Sturridge in Seawall A Life? Audible Plus. How about Certain Women of an Age by Margaret Trudeau? Audible Plus. And The Half-Life of Marie Curie by Lauren Gunderson. Narrated by Kate Mulgrew and Francesca Faradani. Audible Plus. And there's so much more. Audible Plus connects you to a ton of content that entertains, inspires, and informs. It's easy to find just the right listen, whether it's comedy, romance, suspense, true crime, science fiction, or fitness and wellness. You can even squeeze in a workout or guided meditation without having to go to the gym or a class. Visit audible.com slash Broadway Radio or text Broadway Radio, all one word, lowercase, to 500 500 to start your free 30-day trial. We'd like to thank Audible for sponsoring Broadway Radio. Um, since you introduced Jersey Boys into the conversation, I'm reminded of Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, a scene that's in the movie where hmm. Alec Baldwin tells the real estate um, what first prize is a Cadillac, second prize is steak knives, and third prize you're fired. Um, ah. When you didn't get... Uh, the role of Frankie Valley in Jersey Boys. You didn't even get steak knives. And it must have been a tremendous disappointment at that time when they chose someone else ahead of you. Um, what was it like during that period of time when you were devastated, I imagine, that you didn't get it? And then, of course, the exhilaration of getting it. But I wasn't devastated because we didn't know what it was going to be. Uh, at that time, it was just a regional production out at La Jolla Playhouse. Uh-huh. At that time, it was one of many auditions that I, that didn't go my uh-huh. way. So I so I wasn't devastated. Um, I was just like, okay, moving on. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, and I know you were aware because you were there. You know, in that year where I didn't get it, and it went to La Jolla and kind of got built out there. And when it came back to New York and they went back to the drawing board and started auditioning again, I had gone to, you know, to paper mill to mm-hmm. do the drawer chosen. boy. Yeah. With, or, yeah, yeah, the chosen was before, but then the drawer boy with John Mahoney. Mm-hmm. So I was, and I was an understudy in that. And so I was, and it was just a three man play. So I had a lot of time to sit in the wings and, you know, read the the internet you know broadway news or whatever so i was following what was happening with the show but accidentally i was like oh yeah i was up for that and and i saw how it was being extended and becoming this big hit at a regional theater which as we know that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. show gets extended five Mm -hmm. times at a regional Mm -hmm. theater Mm -hmm. so i knew it was a gaining steam and um and and when i heard it was coming back coming to broadway and that they were going back to the drawing board. I just started real. Actually, I was doing the drawer boy when that happened. I was going up into the paper mill rehearsal room while the guys were downstairs working and uh, working up my material again uh, for the Jersey boys auditions, figuring they would come back to me. And they did. That was exactly at that time that I was out of paper mill that I was hmm. preparing to go in again for those auditions. If memory serves, the guy who was doing it went to do a TV series instead. I believe that that what, yeah, I believe that that's what was happening. Do you know him? Did you ever meet him? No, but I knew, I knew of him because, Uh because uh, he was on a TV show that I really liked. He was the Uh guidance counselor on six feet under Claire's guidance counselor. Uh And so I knew who I was like, Oh yeah, it's that guy from TV. And then also um, I did a show uh, with somebody down at the Lucille Ortel theater who had, co-starred with him in some a Christmas show, Mrs. Santa Claus or something. Uh-huh. And, and so I knew uh, him kind of through her who had worked with him. And, uh, and I, and he was, he's five years older than me, which at that mm-hmm. time was a significant difference in terms of um, how much, how, le- how much less green someone could have been. Sure. Sure. <laughs> sure. That makes sense. Um, the fact that I uh, can't take my eyes off of you, um, the day I was there, and I know it's not the only day, got a standing ovation after the number. That doesn't happen very often. Usually people wait to stand at the end of a show. The first time that happened must have been astonishing to you. It was amazing. And, you know, and, and the thing is, like, so the astonishment at the uh, – so I remember when I was a kid, 
high school kid and I saw the Will Rogers Follies um, at the Palace Theater. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there was a, a moment in the show where there was some like, it was like a vaudeville moment with dogs. Mm-hmm. The yeah. dogs like ran up the aisle. Right. And the <laughs> actors on stage, like D. Hody, you know, they like were surprised, like, oh, this is like, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen, you know? And the audience, <laughs> and the audience like bought into it. And so did I. But I went back and I saw it again a second time. And then I, and I was like, you know, my naivete was blown out of the water. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. These are actors. And like, they're quote unquote surprised that the dogs ran up the aisle, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I never had to get to the point where I, where I had to fake the surprise of the audience interrupting me and, and st- doing a standing ovation or whatever, because it was always real. And mm-hmm. <laughs> And, um, and I remembered that first initial surprise and astonishment and, uh, and gratitude for having arrived at that moment where the audience was, you know, fully in love with the character. And, um, and it really resonated for me at that time. It overlapped personally with what was happening to me as a, as a performer in real life. So it was one of those beautiful moments that you can't recreate ever. Because there's only ever once the first time for that kind of stuff. What was it like? Um, so, some of those characters that that are in Jersey Boys, they're, they're of course real life people, and real life people have flaws. And some of the things that those characters have done are are terrible things. And but you have to you have to live with them as as the performer and and bring out the best and get the audience to endear themselves. Uh, to you so you know what was that process like in rehearsal and did you have to revisit that when you did the film and was it a different take by the time I did the film I knew Frankie Valley more mm-hmm. as a as a human being um, so I was you know and I knew the the role more because I had played it 1300 times at least by the time I did that so it was actually exciting for me to be able to go off grid with the character and let him breathe in other areas that were, he couldn't on stage because he's constrained by the script. That's the thing about a long running show where you really understand the character. Uh, I was never frustrated because I'm very audience centric. So I was always aware that they're like 95% of the people at least were always new. So I was, that was what motivated me to keep it as they say, fresh. Um, Cause I was like, Oh, I'm excited. Like in the same way that like, Lin-Manuel Miranda has unbridled enthusiasm, which you can smell from 18 blocks away, you know, like that, that same way that he wants you to enjoy it as much as the person did the day before I can relate to. Yeah, I knew. So first of all, Frankie is an easier character to do that with because, uh, you know, he's just a little wound up bundle of uh, raw talent and just, wanting to seek comfort, you know, and, 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 uh, an opening for, for that talent. So that's the, so that's easy to get behind as an audience, just to root for somebody who's just keeps trying to, you know, to make it happen. Um, a a character like Tommy DeVito is a little bit more in line with what you're talking about, but you have to remember this is before we all had the, the, you know, the anvil to the head of Donald Trump as president of the United States. This was back when people still thought it was really charming for those ball busters. And, you know, the, the, the guys who got their, you know, got success by just kind of sheer force of will and maybe did some dirty things to get there. You remember, we used to think in American culture that those personalities were really charming. We, we don't, maybe so much right now to well that. especially you know the, the 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 heroes of las vegas and the frank sinatras right. uh you know if if you knew about frank sinatra off stage I, I don't think anybody would listen to his music ever again but you know so the, so but in as depicted in jersey boys it's like uh um you know it's like bruiser light you know it's like yeah. it's all it's mm-hmm. it's it's the and especially tommy devito because he's the most of those characters it's sort of he's not vile like like it turned out like donald trump would be he's he's just he's he's just a bull in the china shop and there's something very charm charming about it so i think for every one of us 
And I can, I can probably say for all the actors who played those parts over the years, it's not hard to love your character because they're all, they're all really appealing in their own way. Even the bad boy is appealing. You know, he's not vile bad boy. He just, uh, you know, is skimming off the top or making a move on your girlfriend or whatever. You know, he's a, he's rakish. And then something, and you know, there's a whole tradition in theater of those characters being um, really appealing to audiences. So. And yet I am convinced one of the reasons Jersey boys was so successful is because at the very top of the show, we hear somebody went to jail. We heard that you broke into churches, things like that. And we got the impression you were telling us the truth. It wasn't a whitewash. One of the reasons Lennon um, about John Lennon, not the Lennon sisters uh, that Lennon was considered not to be a hit is because it seemed not to tell the truth because Yoko Ono was so um, afraid of um, letting so much of the truth out and yeah. so the fact that we believed we were hearing the truth it, it may very well be that these guys uh, did a lot of things we didn't hear about that weren't so nice but nevertheless the fact that the show was willing to tell us the bad things about these people at least some of them i think was very germane to people buying into the show and saying oh this is the real thing and i i think you're right about that and also some some of the tropes of the you know kind of like the mafia aligns um uh, you know uh, entertainers or whatever are they they tap into a mythology that we really enjoy as american audiences and and if, you know of course as you know i think and i think it still would have succeeded otherwise but at oh, that yeah. time, at that time we were we were coming out of the big phenomenon of the sopranos you know mm-hmm. on hbo yeah. that was kind of just wrapping up around that time and so um these uh American mythologies that we keep revisiting over and over again were, uh, you know, were right right front and center in a show like that. And it was almost familiar to people like that almost heard these kind of stories before. And I think that, that that had a, a, um, some sort of a a comfort food kind of feeling, you know? Um, And then I think you're right, Peter, is that when you, you let the pretenses down and let them know how flawed you are at the beginning, it's easier for an audience of people who also have their own flaws to kind of rally behind you. Mm-hmm. Peter, I think that uh, we should keep that in mind as we flash forward uh, to a show that may or may not open on Broadway, uh, MJ the Musical, the Michael Jackson Musical. Uh-huh, and, yes. you know, how that's going to yes. be presented to us. Yeah, good point. Uh, you know, uh, Look at everything that's happened since that was put in the pipeline. That's Me right. That all this, That's all these uh, BIPOC issues have come up. Sure. sure so sure. We'll, they're going to have their knives out for that one. Mm-hmm. When do they not have their knives out for any new Broadway show though? But yeah, <laughs> that, that won't be particularly fraught. And, and Peter, only because, only because I, I can't let this one go. Michael, I, I know you're there too, but I, it's a, I don't know. I have this thing for Peter. He's like, these days like this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's like, like this cute historian that I just, uh, you know, I, f- I feel like we would have been best friends in, in another lifetime. But so, um, so there you go, Peter. We, that, that I guess that means we have a, a dinner date. Um, <laughs> yep, there's still time to be best friends, no question. So you <laughs> have that, substantially that, more but, time than I do. Anyway, go on. <laughs> but that word that I've read, and maybe even in some of your own reviews, for what they were doing with Lennon, isn't the word hagiography? Yeah. Where, mm-hmm. Yeah. Where there, where it's a whitewash of the person, mm-hmm. and and then that becomes a little bit, a little bit insulting to our intelligence as an audience, and it's not right. as fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, we have to pay tribute to Rick Ellis. Yes. You know? uh, yes, indeed. He, he knew that, and uh, I, I think it. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't have it in front of me. Lynn Nottage is working on the Michael Jackson book. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and yeah. and I can't imagine that somebody's gonna, you know, she's strong enough and has got enough uh, Broadway credibility to to stand up and say we're going to tell the real story here. So we'll have to see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. and then but on the other hand, what. Mm. That is that what people want to see when they go see a Michael Jackson musical? Do they want to see that part yeah. of that chapter? Well, yeah. yeah, but so. they, if you do it correctly, the way that Rick Ellis did it with Jersey Boys, you know, mm. uh, 
Well, you've also got his family and all that stuff. I don't know. That's right. That's out. right. Yeah. Is that, <laughs> I agree. We had some dicey moments with, uh, you know, when, when Marshall Brickman and um, Rick Ellis were working with the four season with Frankie Valley and Bob Gaudio, the real guys, they ran up against some issues that became a little dicey. You know, I believe it. one of the reasons that Frankie Valley the character is not in that scene where the guys are at the, the, the brothel is because his wife at the time of the conceiving of the show said, if you're in that scene, I'm divorcing you. Wow. So, so, you know, that there were, there were issues like that, that then, you know, that became the only break for the actor playing Frankie Valley in the whole show where he could take, take a few minutes to breathe, you know? So uh, it ended up, it ended up having a real, you know, being a real uh, good decision um, for the endurance of the, uh, the, sure. thing, the yeah. part. but that's, but you know, he probably was in that whorehouse with them. <laughs> you know, um, that's a little bit of a cleanup, but not as extreme maybe as what you're talking about. Uh, Peter with the, you know, um, yeah, sure. Imagine. Mm-hmm. I think, or Lennon. It was called Lennon, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we had to imagine. That's what uh, Lennon exclamation point. The Vladimir Lennon musical. Oh, God. <laughs> so uh, let's transition here for, for a second here. Uh, when you are in Vegas doing your show, uh, you know, before or after, do you, do you ever go to the, uh, the gift shops in Vegas? <laughs> Well, I mean, I could. Are you? Do you want me to get you something? Well, I, I was wondering if uh, if some of your new artwork would be for sale in some of those uh, gift uh-huh. shops. Oh, uh, you know, my artwork would would be a good fit for Vegas. Well, I think that it 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 you know it was described as a combination of Liberace meets Andy Warhol. So yeah. uh, tell yep. tell us about that. Is uh, ha, ha, is this something that has come about during your uh, during your COVID times of uh, social distancing, and you've spent some time at home? Because I see that the Scott uh, toilet paper has taken center stage over your Tony Award. <laughs> that's, well, that's a reflection on our times, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> that, that a that a roll of toilet paper is more valuable than a Tony Award in this society right now. Yeah, so. The artwork is uh, – I made my fir- my debut as an artist in 2010. So – and then, we, you know, it was in galleries and things for years after that. So, so COVID has opened up uh, more time to, 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 to be in the studio, but it's been another career that is separate from – the Broadway and concerts and stuff uh, since 2010. And, and clearly I was making things before that. Cause I, that was a, just the first um, public debut of the artwork. Uh, so it's been more than a decade uh, that I've been making things that are in this established now established style. Um, that is that like the Liberace's pantry, you know, that idea. Mm, yeah. <laughs> So uh, the uh, picture that I'm referring to, we will have in our show notes at BroadwayRadio.com. You can see it. It's it's. Uh, I think it's called a shadow box uh, where um, John has his uh, drama desk, his theater world, his Tony Award, and some of his artwork in there, along with the. Uh, it's a beach. little bigger than a shadow. I mean, it's a cabinet. Yeah, but, it's a, but yeah, it's a little bigger than shadow. But the photograph does give that impression, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And, so, <laughs> and you know, to be fair, that that Tony Award has center stage most of the time. I just, I that was a little bit of mischief putting the the yeah. <laughs> the Scott tissue right in the middle, only to reflect on the crazy situation that we're in as Americans this year or this past year. So, you know, it it, it did you um, in the beginning of the pandemic? Uh, did you? Uh, experience any of these uh, crazy long lines where where markets were running out of food and Scott paper uh, toilet paper and paper towels and things like that. Big time, and the, the toilet paper thing 
you know, happened twice that, that lack of supply. Um, but the instant that happened, I was like, you know, uh, how can I not memorialize this in my body of work? How can I not do this, make this statement both on the ludicrousness of this situation and also the suddenly in America, one roll of toilet paper has become so valuable that it, it just begged for the, the artistic statement I was making, you know, where you, mm-hmm. you encrust it with jewels and make it into this exalted object. You know, <laughs> the ironies there are just irresistible. And, it, it, you know, for someone who uh, enjoys that kind of um, side of, of artwork, the, uh, the irony of it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when COVID happens, yeah, that's the, all that stuff started to happen. And actually I got the idea to, to go full force into that irony at those times where I could go, you know, stand online for target to open and get there. And by the time I get to the toilet paper aisle, it's all gone. You know, I couldn't believe this was America and this was happening to us, you know, cause he, cause only a year or two before that you hear people saying, Oh my God, you know, in Venezuela, you can't even get toilet paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't mm-hmm. get, you can't get toothpaste in Venezuela. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Here we are. We're like Venezuela now. I can't believe it. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, it's a uh, it, it's a it's a great statement about uh, uh, how art reflects our society, and our society is well, reflected in the art. <laughs> that, that piece. So I sent that piece around to some of my friends. You know, a picture of it, and including my friends who. Um, who were my connection initially to the Obama administration. And so they, they texted me back and they said, well, Oh, um, we just sent that picture to Barack Obama. And I, <laughs> so I, so I was like all excited. Right. And I told one of my Jersey boys friends, like the, one of the mm-hmm. producers of Jersey boys, I said, Barack Obama has a picture of this. And she wrote back like, congratulations with the question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's not for everybody, (laughs) but, uh, but I could not keep quiet in that regard and not make some sort of COVID statement, you know, in, in my artwork, because I had a lot of time as we all have uh, to work on other things during this. And I've, I've, I've created a lot of work in 2020, 21. So I have one last question for you this morning. Uh, I noticed uh, it, it's important what people place in the center. And we talked about the Scott paper towels uh, and the, the toilet tissue in, in the middle of this um, and all the different things. Each object in there seems to have a very important meaning to you. And then smack in the center, we have uh, the Debbie Gibson soup is yeah. uh was debbie a 1980s uh crush oh debbie was definitely an 80s crush and also a, a role model for me as a kid at that time i was living in omaha nebraska and her oh. album her albums were you know the big thing so as an adult you know growing up and then getting to a place where i'm friends with her it mm-hmm. gives me so much street cred with all the 80s kids that you know, I grew up with, <laughs> who are now in all these different areas of, of life. You know, I have a friend who is the development director at the, at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. And and she's, you know, was starstruck by knowing that I'm friends with Deborah Gibson now. And, so, you know, <laughs> um, and as you might know, that Debbie is a huge Liberace fan and she mm-hmm. owns one of Liberace's like blinged out pianos. Yeah, I know that. So I had been doing these what I call it's a, obviously it's a Warhol reference. I call them my superstars and I've been (laughs) doing these soup can portraits for years. Um, Barack Obama has one. And, and so she was just the the latest one that I made. Um, And I knew that she would love it because of, because of the whole Liberace aesthetic that she's into. And she actually lives in Vegas with his piano and and this portrait I made for her lives on her piano now on his, on his piano. It's the, I think it's just a perfect fit. I can't believe I didn't think to do one for her earlier. And, and P in Peter and Michael Portentieri, you guys will appreciate this and you're going to have to fight your way 
into that office someday to f- see it for yourself. But Michael David has a superstar portrait. Ah. <laughs> this is, of course, the principal of the Dodgers. Was he wearing a hat or not wearing a hat? <laughs> no hat. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the hardest. I'll tell you one of the hardest things that I've done in these portraits was all those little tiny rhinestone, diamond rhinestone, you know, crystals, mm-hmm. in, all in the little areas, all the nooks and crannies of his beard. Uh, that's funny michael michael david without a hat's like hal prince without glasses on his head Uh, sneakers yeah exactly oh yeah the sneakers that's a big thing yeah 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 remember that well john i want to thank you for joining us on broadway radio our listeners can catch up with john on friday february 12th for an intimate uh personal contract uh concert that will be streamed from live from las vegas uh full of valentine surprises and romantic stories it's called john lloyd young's vegas valentine we'll have a link to that in the show notes and john come back and visit us again okay I didn't realize it was so long ago that we had talked to John, but it was back, uh, mm. boy, about eight, eight, nine years ago or so already. And we'll have, I'll put a link to that, uh, that previous interview in our show notes there. So if anybody wants to go back and listen to it, they can. And also that, that picture that we referred to in our conversation is in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well. So, Peter, mm-hmm. uh, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? No. Let me explain. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll wrap it up. No. <laughs> the question was, what do these musicals have in common? One Touch of Venus, The Pajama Game, Let It Ride, Cry for Us All, The Look of Love, A Night with Janis Joplin, and Rocky. And odds and ends of 1917. Okay, well, nobody got what I was looking for, although Jack Leshner gets credit for noting that all the composers had commercial jingles made from songs from these shows or wrote jingles in addition to Broadway musicals. Tony Janicki said that each had a song that had a proper name in it. When I said, sure, but that wasn't what I had in mind. He tried that each show had a song that it didn't need to be in that show. Yeah, but many musicals have one or two that could be excised without anybody noticing. But he gets credit, too. And because nobody got it, I'm going to keep the question open for one more week. Although I will give a new one as well. But for last week's, I'm going to give a hint. And that is, Ruth Sherwood would have easily answered the question. All right. This week's question. What do these hit musicals, listed in this order for a germane reason, have in common? Showboat, The Boys from Syracuse, Oklahoma, Gypsy, Mame, Follies, and Cabaret. The list is in a specific order for a certain reason. What do they have in common? Okay, if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. Now we have something new and special here. Michael's got a rare musical moment. And uh, Michael, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I was thinking it might be fun if we, every week, if we uh, offered a a rare musical moment. Uh, Rare in, it could be rare in the sense that the show itself is kind of obscure or a flop or not a hit. Or it could be a a rare recording of a hit. for example, I don't know if we'll specifically feel we need to offer you any of the K Medford Gypsy, but something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, one I was thinking of, uh, I, I mean, I, I think we've all spent a lot of time uh, reflecting and thinking about the, the joy and the dignity of the inauguration, especially after the, the shocking, horrendous, tragic uh, riot at the Capitol. And uh, many people I, I found online su- uh, saying, what songs do you feel are appropriate for the, for the current situation, the current mood of the country, the, the new hopeful mood of the country after four years of horrendous, unbelievable 
well, you know, I, I don't have to go on. I, I think mm. everyone agrees with me. Mm. And, and uh, if you're on a musical theater page, people have obviously been suggesting musical theater songs. And one that I uh, thought I would offer is a song from a show I've mentioned before. It was a 1962 off-Broadway musical called Fly Blackbird mm-hmm. uh, that uh, had originally played in L.A. Actually, I, I found a little bit of... Background on it. In 1960, James V. Hatch and his UCLA colleague C. Bernard Jackson collaborated to write the civil rights musical Fly Blackbird, inspired by the student sit-ins in Greensboro, North Carolina, the growing movement for civil and human rights, and the pursuit of justice for African Americans throughout the United States. The production reflected the times and the means by which they believed change would come to American society. Opening at the Metropolitan Theater in Los Angeles in 1961, uh, the show had a multiracial cast and an underlying message of the production uh, that challenged young people to stand up and use their voices to affect change. Fly Blackbird became a call to arms for students on the UCLA campus to join the movement, and it won the 1962 Obie Award for Best Musical after it transferred uh, to to New York. Um, uh, An interesting little trivia fact about this show is that the L.A. production had in the cast George Takei, because while most of the cast is African-American, there are there are some people of other ethnicities and there's one character uh, named George. (laughs) And apparently he was named George because Uh. of George Takei. But then I've actually spoken to George about it and I forget uh, why he didn't come to New York. It wasn't his choice. Uh, He he was actually not very happy about it, but they kept his first name (laughs) for the character. And uh, off Broadway was played by an actor named uh, William Sugihara. But anyway, he was in it. Uh, The off Broadway production did star Avon Long, who was a a legendary performer. Mm -hmm. And uh, the two young lovers were played by Robert Guillaume, and Mary Louise. Now, Robert Guillaume is famous to millions of people as Benson on TV, mm-hmm. but he did a lot of Broadway, including uh, Pearly. He, he was a replacement in Pearly, and he stars in the uh, video version of it that you can, I think, is still available. And then, he, of course, he did Guys and Dolls and, and some other shows. And actually, he and Mary Louise were in the 1960 production of Finian's Rainbow. Uh, and Mary Louise's other credits, I, you know, I, are kind of amazing. House of Flowers in 1954, mm-hmm. um, The Body Beautiful, uh, Phineas Rainbow, as I just mentioned, Quamina, Mr. President, Here's Love. She played Emma, um, Fanny Bryce's maid in Funny Girl. Uh, Me too. Uh, actually, it says, um, she says she was the understudy. Uh, oh, I don't think that's her in the movie. Peter. No, Is that what you're I'm saying? wrong. Okay. I don't I think so. so. No, no. Okay. Uh, but anyway, Sweet Charity, The Apple Tree, Jimmy, uh, Hello, Dolly, the 1975 uh, one when Pearl Braley brought it back. And Side by Side by Sondheim was her last Broadway credit. Um, so this song that, that I, I thought we would offer a bit of is very appropriate, I think, for the current moment. It's called Wake Up. And the uh, opening lines, which you'll hear sung in Robert Guillaume's beautiful voice, are, I do believe that the sun can shine in the middle of the night. Hmm. And then it goes on from there. Uh, So you will hear Robert Guillaume and Mary Louise in this really wonderful song from, from I would say, a a very obscure musical that uh, I would urge everyone to learn more about. There, there is a there is a cast album. I it was never on CD. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually have a, an LP of it right here with me. But I, I think you can find it if you if you try. And I and I hope you will because it's uh, it's not a great show, but it's very. Um, uh, what's the word? Well, I mean, it came at a at a at an amazing time, 1962, a musical about civil rights and. And with all that's happening in the in the world today, uh, I think that it deserves another look. Hmm. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. I do believe 
Sing, shout, shout. 